As I said earlier, it seems like big word, Pastor Bob's going to use big word. Seems like an oxymoron, <laughs> like these two things don't go together. The cradle and the cross. So this is a sermon in which we can celebrate the birth of Christ. For many, connecting his birth and his death in the same sentence doesn't sound right. But we will discover in our lesson this morning, Jesus made that very connection. He pointed to this moment, his birth, and he pointed to his death. It's an obvious statement. We couldn't have had the cross without Bethlehem. We couldn't have had Golgotha without Bethlehem. But just what is the connection? So turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, it's right there in front of you in the pew. It's the Gospel of John. John chapter 12. I'll go slow so that you can hear it if you haven't opened a Bible. John chapter 12, verses 23 to 32. John 12, 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall to the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. He that loves his life shall lose it, and he that hates his life in this world shall keep it to eternal life. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I into this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it, said that it thundered. Others said an angel spoke to him. And Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sake. You needed a little proof of what I'm saying is true. Verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Verse 23, Jesus said, the hour is come. Think about that for a minute. For an infinite God, time does not hold the same significance and the same constraints as it has for us. For God, there is no such thing as time. The beginning and the end is no such, uh, no such uh, idea in his vocabulary. He, has one, he was no beginning. There is no end. God was forever. But when it came to Jesus Christ, God put on a cloak that, that, was in, that was finite. He went from being infinite and timeless to being time-constrained. He went to a place where time was very, very important because Jesus was on a schedule, believe it or not. He was one of those guys who had, like you, you're in business, you have something to do, you got to get it done. Jesus came with a purpose to get something done. In the vastness of eternity, his 33 years on earth that three-year ministry that he had was like a drop in the bucket. There was no significance in three years, but for him, it was a lifetime. He was on a rigid schedule that was set in place long before we began keeping time. His birth occurred not on some arbitrary date. People just think, you know, it kind of fell out of heaven, and that was it. And it was placed that there, there for no apparent reason. He was just, it was just the time, but no specifics. But this was an exact moment that was set in history, in human history. 750 years before Christ's birth, 
there was revealed to the prophet Daniel that 434 years after the rebuilding of the Jewish temple, the Jewish Messiah would ride into Jerusalem to high praise. Now we call that day what? Palm Sunday. So 750 years before Jesus came to earth, the prophecy was out that he was going to ride into Jerusalem. And it was specifically 434 years, this prophecy said, after the rebuilding of the first Jewish temple, which is dated. Nothing arbitrary. That ride one day, which you know is time sun, uh, Palm Sunday, took place exactly on time. In 520, the prophet Haggai predicted the Messiah would be killed prior to the final destruction of the second temple. So back again, hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth, hundreds of years before he was born, a prediction came that not only would he ride into Jerusalem and he'd be praised, but he would die and very shortly after that, the temple would be destroyed. This beautiful temple that was built in splendor to worship God the Father, his date, was, his date preceded the destruction of the temple by 40 years, less than 40 years. He died in 33 AD. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Imagine that. So Jesus even said prior to his death that when I'm gone, this temple is going to be destroyed. Not even a stone will be left on top of another stone. He's predicting it. He's taking up what the prophets had said, and he's putting his own words to it. So we got a double prophet here. The prophet from hundreds of years previously, and the prophet Jesus Christ, saying when he was going to be destroyed and when the temple was. Verse 24, Jesus says, a seed must fall to the ground in order to produce life. So before Jesus could give his life on the cross, he had to first come from heaven to earth. He chose a humble birth. He chose a poor family. He chose a small town. He chose a birth on the lowest rung of the socioeconomic scale. You couldn't get much lower than the birth Jesus had. He wanted to identify with every single common person. In other words, this morning he wants to look at you and he wants to say, I've come for you. This is personal with me. Can you imagine Jesus looking you in the eye right now and saying, I came here in this manner just for you, to identify with you, to connect with you, to let you know I care for you. I don't care what your social status is. I don't care where you are on the rung of people's imagination. I don't care where you came from. I don't care who you are. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how poor you are. I don't care the color of your skin. I don't care about whether you're Jewish or Gentile. I don't care whether you're living in freedom or you're living in slavery. I've come for you. Where are you in that spectrum? How do you feel about yourself when I think about the creator of the universe coming for me individually, personally? It's awesome. I can't get my arms around. I can't get over it. And I wonder how anybody who realizes that would not want to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, want to keep pushing him away. After all he did for you and me, all he gave up, all the power he relinquished. You know, you couldn't pry power from a Washington politician with a crowbar. But Jesus, hanging on that cross with his arms spread wide open, just gave it all away. 
all the power of the universe, not this little petty anti-universe of Washington, D.C. or Trenton, New Jersey. He gave up the whole, use your Jewish expression, he gave up the whole Megillah. Everything. Why? For his reasons for coming, because for God so loved the world, because he loves you. That's the greatest force on the earth. It says in 1 Corinthians, there are many great things, but the greatest of these is putting your love in action. And Jesus did just that. His birth was unprecedented in human biological history. His human existence was initiated by the spark of life supernaturally begun in the womb of a virgin. The seed of infinite life that is eternal God had now become the, the finite human life that was Jesus Christ. Paul writes this in Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law. In verse 24, the second half says, Jesus said, a seed dies in order to bring forth fruit. So if you are a farmer or a backyard gardener and you want to plant corn, you go to that little packet. I don't know how many seeds are in there. Maybe it's a bigger packet these days, you know, inflation. And you go and you pick out a seed and you bury it in the ground. And you wait. And by the 4th of July, if you've got enough water and enough sunshine, something starts to sprout. And by the 4th of July, it's knee high. And if you keep letting it go and the rain keeps coming, everything keeps working out. That little seed that you planted now becomes this sprouting giant of a thing way over the top of your head. And on the sides of it is hanging pendulously at least one big thing maybe two big things. And you go over there and you rip them off and there's more seed corn there on those ears than you buried in the ground. Something miraculously happened while you were just hanging around, while you were just waiting. While you were waiting, new life was being created. Jesus compares the seed to himself, illustrating the hard fact that in God's plan, he will have to die. He will have to go into the ground so that eternal life would be made available to those who receive him as Savior. Multiplication. Multiplication. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also had once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, for you and for me. None of us is without sin. We're the unjust. Don't look at yourself in the mirror and think you're so pretty. All of us have sinned. Our lives are marked by it. But now what? We can have those marks wiped away. There'll be only one person in heaven with scars on his hands and scars on his feet and scars on his forehead, and that'll be Jesus. The only one in heaven who'll be marked indelibly for eternity in life to remind us of how much love there is in heaven and how much love there is for you on earth when you find Jesus as Savior. That might bring us, the verse continues, to God by being put to death in the flesh, but made alive, quickened by the Spirit. He died, he suffered, he died, he was in the grave, and he rose again. Verse 27 says, it's for this cause that I came to earth. Now, if you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the next airplane flight you're going to take is guaranteed it's going to crash and you're going to die. How many of you are prepared to get on that flight? All right, let's make it a little easier. Suppose as you get to the airport, if you can possibly get to an airport, and you stand in line with hundreds of people waiting to get on the plane, all of a sudden the announcement comes that the plane you're about to get on has a 10% chance of crashing. 
but they'll give you a little deduction if you'd like. How many of you are prepared to get on that plane? Well, Jesus was knowledgeable of the fact that there was a 100% chance he was not going to make it out alive. Not only not make it out alive, but he was going to give his life up in 33 years. He knew the exact moment. He knew the circumstances. He knew the players. He knew the bit. He knew what was happening. And he came anyway. He got on the plane knowing it was going to crash. And we sit here. Oh, cool. Nice. I'm glad he did that. That's got to be earth-shattering, earth-shaking. It's got to get us to the place where we're no longer apathetic about reaching the people in our own life with Jesus. <laughs> Recognizing this, verse 27, Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled. Oh, guess why? What troubled him? What did the adult Jesus experience of human life that the baby Jesus didn't? He saw the depth of man's depravity. He saw the, man, the depth of man's sin. He saw what Rome was doing to the people in their crushing, ugly use of absolute and corrupt power. He saw the hypocrisy of false religious leaders manipulating the very people whom they were to serve in the name of God. Hypocrisy in the church? Oh, yeah, amen, 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 man. And people being led astray. He saw the injustice of discrimination and prejudice even among good people. He knew he was going to have to take that dirty mantle of sin, all that rot, all that corruption, all that dirt, all that mean-spirited, and he was going to have to wear it for a while. The Bible says that your sin and my sin was cast on him. He carried it. I can't explain that in theological terms that make sense to others, but just think of the picture, that your sin was put on his back. And by those stripes that they whipped him in with, your sins are forgiven. The conscience and soul of America suffers the death of a thousand cuts when clergy, politicians, entertainers, sports people, and the rest of us shrug off our sins, which are many. It's nothing today for people to stand in front of you on television and tell you all the secrets of their dirty lifestyle. And they're proud of it. And guess what? They want us to celebrate with them. Love can cover, love can cover sin, but it can't condone it. God doesn't condone that. He's willing to forgive it. He's willing to forgive whatever your sin. I'm not picking on any one particular sin because sin is sin. Amen? If you're a liar, that's sin. If you're doing any one of the numbers of sins that are, we can see on television and in commercials today, it's sin. And God is ready to forgive all sin and make us pure in front of his face. In our delusion and in our deadened conscience, there is no such thing as sin. Think about that. And listen to this rationale behind it. How convenient, no sin? Well, if you don't have any sin, you don't need a savior who can take away that sin. When the baby Jesus was born, the angels sang peace on earth. Without the recognition of sin, without a remedy for sin, without confession and repentance of sin, without forgiveness of sin, and without the Savior, Jesus Christ, there can be no true peace in your life. Don't doubt it. Just think about it. Someone has defined sin as this. Quote, doing what you want to do. 
doing what you want to do. That's the spirit of our age, isn't it? How's it working? You like it? Want to see it continue? The answer is not some universal thing. The answer is a one-to-one -one relationship with Jesus Christ. You're not going to change the world. You're not going to change anybody. But you can do what you can do, and what you can do is hablan. You can talk. The baby's birth promised what the crucified and resurrected Savior alone can deliver. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Don't get anxious, don't get concerned, but do something. Verse 32, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. When the baby Jesus was born, the angels began their proclamations of peace and goodwill and joy. But it started with another phrase, and that phrase was glory to God in the highest. Get a Hallmark postcard, and what you'll find on a Hallmark postcard is peace, goodwill to men. But where's that first phrase? And the first phrase is the operative phrase. Glory to God in the highest. And then peace, goodwill to men. And unless you're prepared to put God and honor God first and put him up front and dedicate your life to bringing God glory, there ain't going to be no peace because you still have the priorities wrong. You're still thinking about you instead of thinking about him. And you put all your cares and all your worries and all your troubles way before going to him. Some, for some people, the last resort is praying. I, I tried everything else, and so I decided to pray. How about I decided to pray, and then I tried everything else? Because the other things are going to be told to you by the Lord. Take this, do this, the other thing. Life must be dedicated to bring glory and honor to God. We're not talking about perfection. Some people think that we are. We're not. You do your best and God does the rest. Amen? There was a promise of Jesus' birth was realized on the cross. Isaiah chapter 53. Here's what it says. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 to 6. Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He's no superstar. If you're thinking Jesus the superstar, forget it. He's despised. He's rejected of men. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces. We don't want anyone to look at him. He's despised and esteemed, we esteemed him not. He's not somebody you're going to look at and say, wow. He's somebody you're going to look and say, oh. And then when you see what he's gone through, you're going to go even more, oh. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We did him esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we were healed. He didn't suffer that because of anything he did. Guess what? Jesus was perfect. Jesus never hurt anybody. He wasn't looking to hurt anybody. Every time somebody would pick up a sword, he'd say, put that sword down. What are you, cracking up? Put that sword down. I've not, not come here to do that. I've come here to give life, not take life. And more than that, I've come to give away my life. And then he could look at any one of us and say, which of you are prepared to do that, may I ask? 
You talk about loving somebody's self. Are you prepared to give away some of the things that you're doing that are displeasing to the Father? Or you want to continue in them? Do you want to keep resisting God? Keep resisting Jesus and make believe he doesn't exist? And this is a nice place to come on a Sunday. And he does say some things that I'm interested in. But as far as giving my life to Jesus, why? Well, here's one reason. He gave this for you. Ain't it fair? Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Whatever it is that you've done in your past, he takes it. You don't have to carry it anymore. Isaiah tells us your healing flows from his wounds. Your joy comes from his sorrow. Your glory comes from his humiliation. Your riches come from his poverty. Your hope comes from his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. He literally spoke of being lifted on the cross, but figuratively, he speaks to you and me as individuals to lift him up in our life and together to lift him up in our church. Something good is happening here. And you're part of it. And you need others to know that. And you need to share with others the Jesus who makes good things happen. To elevate him to be number one in my life, he must be my highest priority. If he's number one, all other aspects of my life fall into line. If he's the center of my thoughts, my home life, my work life, my social life, I'm lifting him up in his rightful place in my life. When I celebrate his birth, his death, and his resurrection every day of my life, it's because it is my life. Jesus reminds us in our text this morning that we reach people for Christ by planting seeds of faith. They see it, and then they hear it. And what they see goes way before what they hear. And they know if it's real. Sharing the gospel when God gives us an open door to speak or to invite somebody to church, it's not easy. But the gospel will bear fruit wherever it is spread. Closing story. Chords of evangelism. In his book, What in the World is God Doing? Dr. Ted Engstrom relates a story told by a veteran Korean Christian. In the early 1800s, three Korean workmen laboring in China heard the gospel and embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. Three soon, the three soon conspired to getting the message of Christ into their own country of Korea. An action forbidden by the government, since the Korean and Chinese alphabets are similar, they decided to smuggle in a copy of the Chinese Bible. They drew straws to see who would have the privilege of bringing the gospel into Korea. The first man buried the Bible in his belongings and headed toward the border, a journey of many days by footpath. There he was searched, found out, and killed. Word reached the others that their friend was dead. The second man tore pages from his Bible and hid the separate pages throughout his luggage. He too made the long trip to the border, only to be searched and killed. Two down. The third grew more determined than ever to succeed. He ingeniously tore his Bible apart page by page, folding each page into tiny strips. He wove the strips into a rope and wrapped his luggage with his homemade rope. When he came to the border, the gods asked him to unwrap his belongings. Finding nothing amiss, they admitted him. The man arrived home, untied the rope, ironed out each page, 
reassembled his Bible and began to preach Christ wherever he went. And when the missionaries of the 1800s fanned out into the country, they found that seed already sown and the first fruits appearing. Here is an epilogue. Do you know that in South Korea, more than 50% of South Koreans are now Christians? Bible-carrying Christians. Why? Because somebody dared to stand up and say, I follow Jesus. And they told their friends and they told their neighbors, who's your neighbor? Two challenges for you this morning. For you to speak up and for you to invite. When God, I've been, I've been saying this for the last two weeks, who's God laid on your heart that needs Jesus? Are you going to answer the call when God opens that door? And the second thing, if you can't do it, if you just feel you can't say something, you can invite them to church and just say, well, we'll put them up front and let the pastor do the talking. And then you just wind me up and let me go. This is why he was born in a manger. And this is why he died on a cross. And what are you going to do in return for all of that? From the cradle to the cross, out of love, let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for the privileges that we do have, the opportunities that we do get to preach the gospel or speak the gospel or live the gospel in any way that we might share with friends. We thank you for giving us a ministry here inside the meeting house. We thank you that good things are happening. We pray this morning, Lord, for those who are watching in and those who are listening in. And we know, Father, that you called us, each person in this congregation and this congregation, to reach beyond the walls of the meeting house and to share the gospel with any who are willing to listen. And so, Father, by the, by the visions you give us, by the capacity you give us, by the resources that you give us to do this, help us to reach that mission of going beyond the walls and within the walls to reach everyone for Jesus. It's up to them as individuals, but it's up to us to share the love of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this Christmas morning, and let it be Christmas in our hearts every day. And we'll pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.